0: Hello, welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 31. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with architect Ron Force. When Ron Force got into the design business in the late 1980s, appreciation for historic golf courses and the architects who made them was only just becoming a serious consideration. Golf writers and historians had long been aware of the works of Golden Age designers like Alistair McKenzie, A.W. Tillinghast, and particularly Donald Ross. But that appreciation had yet to evolve into any kind of sustained study or movement to preserve and protect the integrity of their golf courses, most of which had been altered or aged out of their original forms. Force was on the forefront of the historical restoration trend, a pioneer, along with people like Ron Pritchard and Brian Silva, who saw that the names of the old masters were more than just historical footnotes and taglines to famous courses. Forrest deserves much of the credit for enlightening clubs as well as the wider golf community to the importance of recapturing the true design features, proportions, and aesthetics of Golden Age courses that had been lost to time. He and his business partner Jim Nagel have worked on and consulted with what seems like countless clubs throughout the U.S. and Canada, restoring the work of Tillinghast, Rayner, Langford, William Flynn, Willie Park Jr., and others. They've been involved with over 50 Donald Ross course restorations alone. The work that he was beautiful, studied, and full of nuance and grace. Force is also one of the friendliest and most well liked men in the industry. This was a fun and long and roaming talk. We went around the world and back, it felt like, with names and places and people and clubs rifled like a deck of cards. There was a lot of conversational action. I think you'll enjoy this one, so let's not delay. Here's Ron Force. Surprising to you, I'm, I'm not good at all
1: this technical stuff. <laughs> I'm neither. I, I rely, I rely on the younger guy, 13 years younger me, Jim Nagel.
0: Yeah, I don't have anybody like that. Right here, it's
1: just me. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, we're good. We're up and running now. So, um, so as we were we were talking about uh, your project at Pelican Bay, down. Actually, let me ask you this first: How often are you on the road? You know, it seems like you probably travel all the time. Do you carve out weeks a week off here and there or days off how do you manage your time
1: yeah it's it's because we work in the um, in florida a lot and because we work in the northeast a lot we it it's uh oh something's always jumping so i'm generally not able to be home an entire week it happens once in a while but uh you know like this time of year people are in the northeast are planning their stuff you know hurrying up and getting it all ready for the fall and um, places in Flo- in Florida where, you know, like right now we're getting the construction documents together for Pelican Bay in Naples, 27 holes and and the driving range and the practice facility. So that's, when I'm here, I'm doing a lot of contour lines and things like that and uh, refining the design. But yeah, the travel is about weekly, pretty much. You know, uh, this w- next coming week, I'm going to Calgary, Canada, Calgary Golf and Country Club, which is... Willie Park Junior Course oh, and uh, fun, Yeah, we've worked for them since the mid 2000s and uh you know, they're planning on some bunker modifications. The uh the, the age of the membership is rather high and there's an 18-year waiting list to get in there and another waiting list to get on the waiting list and uh so they want to uh you know some of the outer banks of bunkers we want to kind of soften those a little bit and encourage balls from staying up on the face so we're going to uh when they when they rework the bunkers again it's a long time already and so when they rework the bunkers again we're going to go with fescue grass because it's just doing really well they fine fescues and let the ball roll out any bluegrass just hangs the ball up on the slope uh so that's you know that's one of the things we're going to do we got a we got a town hall meeting up there so that's the type of travel we do um and then also just getting out on getting out on site during construction what's the golf scene like in Calgary it seems kind of far
0: afield for Willie Park to get up there did I, I know yeah. he did work in, in Canada like around Toronto but
1: you know Calgary's way out there especially in the 1920s I know and and if you look, yes it is way out there and if you look at Willie Park photo of him when he was 52 years old he was already getting sick it was 19 20. Uh, Something like that. He was he was he was all over the place. He was doing Yachigani in Pittsburgh. He was doing Penn State's golf courses, the, the the old white course. He was doing you know he he was doing out there in Calgary. He was still working in the other part of Canada. He had done Roe Montreal before that, but he was traveling so much. He it really wore him out. He went home in 1923 back to Scotland, never returned, and he died there relatively young. So, yeah, I mean, that was a sobering photo when I looked at that. When he was 52, he was starting to go downhill, and I'm thinking, oh, man, i got to make sure I manage this properly. <laughs> well, I mean, so, think about how he was traveling, too.
0: That couldn't have been good on the body. No. You know, just the exit, no. you know, to get out in the West and on, I guess, on trains and, you know, sitting in uncomfortable positions for that long period of time
1: that probably yeah, hurried that his demise. Kind of, yeah, and they probably got a good berth. But but one of the nice things that they those guys had was – they were forced to slow down in between jobs and they I think they did a lot of thinking and sketching and, and uh, uh, getting their thoughts together on the train when they were in between in between stops. So there was a mandatory respite that they would have that uh, you know today there's you know, you got to get things done quickly, you know. Maybe you could start taking trains, Amtrak. Oh, Amtrak. Oh boy. That would be a, that would be a treat, but, uh, (laughs) not going to do that. Yeah. No, I think the older one's probably better, but yeah, the travel, the travel is, is a thing. It was, it was part of the reason why initially I thought of not getting into it was because it was because of the travel and I wanted to have a family. And so we prayed about it, my wife and I, when it was time to go into it and we, uh, we really felt like, okay, this is good. You know, and I was working for just got a college and moved from, uh, I was at West Virginia university in Morgantown, the Northern end of West Virginia, went up to Uniontown, Pennsylvania, worked for a civil and mining engineering company and, uh, met my wife there. But, uh, after about eight years, nine years, like, Oh man, I'm topping out here. This is a low paying place, low paying job. So we, and I wanted to do golf architectures since as a kid, since 13. So we looked into into it, and in May of '89, jumped ship totally. Even though we had some golf golf clients, a couple of golf clients already with the uh, the company I was with, that uh, I brought in, went out and got. I don't know yeah, if so that's
0: if that's uh, just completely complete confidence on your part or, or just, or ignorance thinking that you could move into golf course architecture and start making money.
1: <laughs> I know it was, I grossed 14,000 in the first year. And I, and and I, I, when I jumped ship from the engineering company called Fayette engineering in Fayette County, Pennsylvania. In fact, that's where we're still incorporated. And uh-huh. Jim Nagel, Jim Nagel's up there. And I'm, and I, I get to sleep in Florida at our home in new Smyrna beach. But he, uh, he's still up there his wife's got roots there so they're staying there and uh yeah a guy uh, when i jumped ship and went out on my own i had to abandon the clients that we had such as nemacol and woodlands resort up there uh where they used to play the 84 lumber classic about a decade ago Uh and that was where where we got started um but i had to i had to disengagement of many clients, and go out and have them come after me if they wanted me personally to work for them. Right. I was the only to do it legally. Uh-huh. So, so we did that, and um, it was uh, it was quite an adventure. And there, in the meantime, I was still helping out the engineering company wrap some things up, including a city park in Uniontown. And the guy who was the the builder, the contractor, lent me some money. At like twelve percent in those days, nineteen eighty nine, and uh, yeah, the interest rates were nothing like what we see. And so they, so he helped me out and uh, really got started. And 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 I do want to mention, Mike Herdson, Doctor Michael Herdson. Uh, he was doing a plan at Nemacolin Woodlands in the mid eighties, and I went up there and. Saw his name on the uh, on the letter they had framed with the master plan that he had done when the Rockwell family of Rockwell International owned Nemacolin Woodlands, and uh, I started talking to Mike, and uh, I called Jack Kidwell. He goes, oh, "I'm retired. I'm in my tomato patch. You got to call Mike Herds." And mm-hmm. so I called him, and Mike, while I was still with the engineering company. Mike agreed to team team up with us. And in Canaan Valley, West Virginia, there's a place called Timberline Four Seasons Resort. When I was on vacation down there, uh, absolutely gorgeous uh, mountain. Well, every, West Virginia is almost all mountains, but unbelievably beautiful area. Canaan Valley, West Virginia. We had our honeymoon there, went back at various times. And so we're down there and I go over and, and I manage to get this client. And uh, we were doing architectural renderings for them and things like that. And a guy calls up, says, Hey, I need a golf course plan. So we did a 27 hole master plan, a golf course, community master plan, Uh, all the housing, all the golf, the routing. I did, you know, I did all that. And Mike helped with that and uh, went down to the site twice. We gave him a third of it, a third of the cut. And he thought he would never, he wouldn't even get anything from this. And, he almost made me cry like a baby when he when he uh, told me that because he's so gracious and yeah, well, he did experience. a solid there.
0: Oh yeah, probably he, in your business it's usually the opposite. People cutting guys out.
1: Well, I had one guy told me one time, "Hey, I don't want any competition down here. You stay up north." <laughs> I've heard stories. <laughs> yeah. and uh, so yeah, the um, so yeah, it's highly competitive business. And I I remember one time. In 89, when I was talking to Ron Witten, he said, golf course architect's the most insecure group of people I've ever met. And <laughs> so Mike <sighs> was incredibly secure, and he, uh, and he was just so gracious. Uh, there's no way I could ever repay him. One of the really great moments, uh, I know I'm diverting for a second here, but one of the really great moments was in 2009, we, we did a project in southern Pennsylvania called the Bedford Springs Resort. yeah. Um, and, uh, that in Nemecol and Woodlands, the Pete Dye course or courses now they keep, they battle for one and two in the state for non-private, you know, at, yeah. Uh, resort places public, you can access. play public, public yeah. access in the state of Pennsylvania. So it was, uh, so we were at the uh, Doral, the golf Inc awards dinner. And I got a photograph of me and Mike, they got an award for, I think it was country club, of, uh, Darien Connecticut. And, uh, you know, we got the award for renovation of the year for the for the never and woodlands resort i mean for the uh, i'm sorry bedford springs resort and um so that was just a really nice time to you know get a nice little photo with mike and me there and uh, he was just an incredible encouragement and totally realistic he uh, you know he has an army background and uh he's a know, he green was- beret yeah, yeah. He's a he badass. Was, yeah, <laughs> and he was, you know, he was, he was an expert, He's an expert in, uh, you know, uh, Russian, you know, the, the rush, the whole Russian thing. And um, I asked him a pointed question one time and his answer was, could be, you know, he didn't want to, he was, you know, kept his, kept the secrets well. So, um, yeah, yeah he was uh he's he one of those guys a, i think about this a lot yeah in
0: in architecture which is you know what you and i deal with there seems to be a certain category of guys like like dr Herdson who are just their 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 interests are so broad they have so many levels yeah. of expertise he's got multiple degrees you know he's yeah he, i didn't even yeah. know that about the you know his historically the the russian thing you just mentioned but you know he's a He's a a golf course historian. His collection is really well known. And I just talked to uh, Bo Welling on the last episode. And, you know, he's got like a major in physics and he studied Irish playwrights in Ireland. And he's on the U.S. board of the Curling Association. I mean, just uh, there are some guys that are just like high achievers in a multiple, you know, an array of fields. And and then there are guys who are just singularly focused. They're the in the dirt guys, you know, who all all they do is, is golf, golf. Where do you fall on that? spectrum
1: uh, I hope I hope I have I hope I have uh, more interest in just golf architecture but uh, you know beyond that it, everything I do is is really is really un, is under the lordship of Christ and, and because he's he's a great he's a really great great he's the creator all the arts and everything really the ability to be creative Um. Of course, nature and all that just comes from, that comes from God. And so everything is, uh, that's the big umbrella. So there's there's a much bigger picture involved that we're involved with than than just golf architecture. But I do, I absolutely, I am not an accomplished musician. I play a little bit. What do you play? But, well, I have some guitars and uh-huh. uh, play play bass and worship band and things like that. Um, I'm starting that up again. But um, I'm by no means some kind of craftsman. But I'll tell you, somebody who's really interesting with that is Robert McNeil from Rhode Island. He is a tremendous harmonica player. So you do have guys like that in the business. And and Bob Cup, you know, who was just great, yeah. great at so many things, he fine was. arts, furniture yep. making, with wood, all mm-hmm. kinds
0: of stuff. Yeah, he was another one of those people that are renaissance in their interest and abilities. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's um, probably a there's probably a pretty good architecture band out there if you get the you know enough guys together you could you know cover your bass. I know Jeff Bradley's a drummer you know you mentioned you got the harmonica oh, I didn't know and, that and the
1: bass but, covered yeah well John Lafoy is an extremely accomplished banjo player okay he Just adds he a little been, texture has, and color to the band yeah yeah be, yeah, yeah. And he's he gets invited to a thing called banjothon by I keep forgetting his name Bernie what's his name the original lead guitarist for the Eagles and he is um, he's actually from Minnesota and uh, John gets invited to that he's, he's incredible and uh, when John Lafoy and herdson get together they talk about the military because John was a marine and uh, mm-hmm. but somewhere in there I mean I'm interested I'm interested in everything there is out there I mean I'm just philosophy um you know, natural systems, everything. I'm just my wife just tells me, you know, I just there's nothing I'm not interested in. So, it's hard to pinpoint any one thing. But I just deeply, deeply appreciate music, and uh, want to uh, want to get better at, at playing guitar for one thing. But
0: uh, well, like, what are tough. your what are your musical tendencies? Do you uh, is it you know rock and roll based or or you know blues or yes.
1: <laughs> it, okay. it is. And like, I'm practicing some finger picking and, uh, but growing up, my band was Jethro Tull because they were so versatile. Uh, in fact, I just bought a Jethro Tull That's t-shirt.
0: so. Yeah, that's funny. There's, there's a lot of people that are listening to this that will just not understand
1: <laughs> no, Jethro no, Tull. Yeah. Not at all. They're just, you know, they a know there's a, there's a, a flute, flute involved. The guy stands on one foot, plays a flute, wearing yeah. a plaid coat. So, um, Ian Anderson. But, Yes, and Ian Anderson, yeah. and uh, but the the uh, in, incredible versatility of that band, where you can't peg them, absolutely fascinated me on a guttural level, and just just uh, you know just a base level, if you can put it that way. And uh, I, I still listen to them all the time, but I absolutely love the blues. I absolutely love love great um, just strongly and finger-picking stuff, and I just really, one of my favorite albums is still Desperado by the Eagles, mm-hmm. so that's just the musicianship in that is just incredible, and some people might not like the slant towards country, but, you know, I growing up, I was really into into heavy rock, so. Uh, one of my best
0: friends in, was really into Jethro Tull in, in college, and we used to listen to those albums, you know, late at night, and got pretty into it, and a few years later, you know, I kind of out, I didn't really follow Jethro Tull much after that. It was just when I was hanging out with him, I'd listen to it. But we went to a karaoke bar at some point and everybody's getting up and singing the pop songs or whatever, you know, the, the sing along songs. and, And he gets up. (laughs) <laughs> and sings aqualong <laughs> you can imagine being in a crowded bar and somebody puts on aqualong which is like a six or seven minutes song and, and there's no you know sing along to it he just i think he emptied out the
1: room people just started leaving that's hilarious
0: oh, worst that decision so
1: cool. well one, one time yeah one time we were i was goofing around at a practice in the church you went to a back north actually it was in Morgantown because it's so close to Uniontown PA and I was just practicing some like boogie bass thing uh, on our Saturday morning practice and I abruptly stopped the boogie and hit the first six notes of Aqualung and yeah. <laughs> uh, the guy I'm playing with knew what it was he was cracking up and his wife goes what what did I miss something what 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 was that did <laughs> yeah <laughs> but
0: uh, it, yeah he had he had to know it he had to know be at that place in the late 70s
1: no that was you know that was one of those progressive bands where the the, the creativity the music was just through the roof and then you get to the point of the sex pistols and everything is nothing but image (laughs) that's all it is anymore and not totally stevie ray vaughn was you know coming around all that so you had great music but uh well it's you know
0: that it's like the cycle of art everything is so so much of it is a reaction against what's What's prevalent, you know, and yeah, that's what punk was. It was a reaction, a lot to those to Yes and Jethro Tull and Emerson, yeah. Lake and Palmer. These guys that just had these long, epic concept albums, and then all of a sudden you get a, a two and a half minute thrash song, and the people sweating and you know spitting on the <laughs> audience. It's like that's going to get that's going to get some attention. You know, it almost makes what came before it seem sort of silly. Almost that's same thing happened in the in the '90s when like Nirvana and Pearl Jam yeah. and the Seattle scene came and yep. you know it made those you know California makeup wearing hairbands just look ridiculous you know <laughs> overnight they had no they had no job anymore no relevance well,
1: unfortunately I all the time I thought they looked a little ridiculous because you couldn't tell on the vi- music videos you couldn't tell Axl Rose from the girl who was uh, hanging out with him on the video you yeah. know the, the same hairstyle but uh, I guess that was it was working <laughs> for him for a while <laughs>
0: So you and your wife, you figured out the travel though. You know, you, you said you, you prayed on it
1: and, and, uh... And yes. And it was, um, yeah. So we, you know, she, she, she goes along with me on trips sometimes like, you know, working in Naples, we'll drive all the way down there and, and, uh, you know, and once in a while we'll fly up where maybe where one of our kids are and try to see, we got one kid that was a teacher in New York city for a while and he's back, back in Pittsburgh. Uh, which is, you know, we lived in the Pittsburgh region for, uh, well, I was there for almost 40 years, I guess, and that's where he raised our family, and so he's back there, and I got another kid's moving from Chicago to Los Angeles tomorrow, and another another one of my kids is working in the tu- with a tuberculosis program in Vietnam, and she's been in She's been in Durban, South Africa, and Karachi, Pakistan, and uh, so she, you know, so we try to take advantage of opportunities and work to try to try to get there. Unfortunately, I have nothing in LA going on right now, but I do have September, middle September, I do have to go out to Peninsula Golf and Country Club in San Francisco, but I don't know if I'll see my son then, but so we try to tie in the travel thing. We try to tie in visits with jobs and uh, go together when we can. And you know, tie it in with seeing the kids too. Yeah, yeah. You know, pick up a project in Vietnam. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's a that's a that's a long haul. That's a long haul uh, We have never had to do. I mean, Calgary, Canada was is is uh, is about the furthest that uh, or California that we've ever needed to go. And I don't don't really want to go anywhere. You know, it's just it becomes inefficient.
0: Real quick on Willie Park, you know. the attention paid in the study of, of architects from, you know, the pre-Depression era, you know, it usually starts with Ross and McKenzie and, and Tillinghast and, you know, it, then Raynor kind of came on a little bit later and and all of his work's been so appreciated, you know, over the last 25 years. And now you kind of see a lot of the study and interest getting into Perry Maxwell over the last, you know, more recently, more studies being done more in depth. Langford and Moreau are being studied a little bit more. I feel like Willie Park, though, is still you know there's probably a lot to discover about him a lot of the work that he did in the
1: united states is that the way you feel yes he's he's yeah langford i'm going to jump over to langford a second that was we we worked for the Lausonia links starting in the mid in the mid 90s and uh oh, while I didn't we were I working, didn't know you were involved with him yeah they it, we did a master plan for them uh-huh. there's almost nothing to do there it's like it's like what George Brett's batting coach used to do when he was a hot streak. At a boy, at a boy, George. Yeah. That's all. That was his essence of the, his batting coach's coaching. And it's like, Attaboy, a boy, Lausonia, don't touch it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't screw it up. Just leave it alone. And uh, yeah, we worked there. In fact, I was just out there this summer and played it. I hadn't been there in a while, in a number of years. Such an amazing place. What? A, oh man, oh. it is. It's so pure it could it's be there just, every day. Yeah, it's it's that place is a work of art. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. They just, you know, the places that haven't had the money, haven't haven't screwed around with their golf courses, you know, and that's why you find these great gems in New England because of a bunch of Yankees, especially when you get towards the coast, and they they just didn't want to spend any money on it, and it's great. And they they weren't monkeying around and trying to try they they couldn't care less. If uh, some if somebody thought their course was inferior to somebody else's, and in, in, in you know forty miles down the road, they don't care, right? And and it's fantastic. But Willie Park and Langford, yeah, we, we we were involved with Langford to nobody was really talking about Langford. Ron Witten mentioned to me, and then I went out to Lawsonia and saw that, and I saw I saw um, West Bend, and I even talked to Langford's son. Tommy Langford, who was living in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We don't even know if he's still living, but uh uh-huh. you know, he was telling me, you know, I got to know something about William Langford through him. And uh but but the Willie Park thing, Willie Park was really good at the short game and putting, and his putting greens are they're they're absolutely superb. Some of the best sets of putting greens were done, you know, you find a collective 18 are found at Willie Park Junior Golf Courses. One place in the town I was born in, uh, Glen Ridge, New Jersey, which is a bus right up against Montclair, the Newark area, the uh, which is where I grew up, down the road in West Caldwell. But they, uh, that little, that little Willie Park Junior Course, 6,200 yards, 1918, has some of the best putting greens in the entire state. They're just, and and nobody knows about them, and and the membership doesn't really appreciate it. They, they don't know. They just don't know. I mean, they're they're there, you know. They're not trained to try to discern quality putting greens. They know what they like. And it's just got these really interesting putting greens. In fact, their first green is very much like the 13th at Maidstone that Willie Park did, where it's, uh, you, you, on the left half, you hit over a bunker to a raised area, and the right front of the green just falls off mm-hmm. to a low area. It's the same green. And uh, all the architects had tendencies but one of the funny things about golf architects is people think they can peg an architect you know like one person said a golf architect one time said binghamton country club we used to work for them as a tillinghouse course binghamton new york country club is not a tillinghouse course because it doesn't have hell's half acre on it which he just didn't do it there you know people people feel that all kinds of people feel that uh you know that golf architects are monolithic, right? Like they have their, to put their their, their calling card on every yeah every like, design. Yeah, and and unfortunately, some I, I I think in the modern era, a lot of guys feel pressure to create their thing so that they can kind of a brand. So like, oh yeah, we want that brand, and you know Pete Dye has a brand, but he didn't try to do that. It was organic. It happened because of his his reaction against boring mid-century golf architecture in the U.S. and his willingness to innovate after he was inspired by Scottish stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I, I used to teach seminars for GCSAA, and one of them was Classic Course the Master Architects. And one of the things we did in there, in the Pete Dye section of that, studying the architects, was basically we said Pete Dye saved American architecture from boredom. I mean, it was really getting boring. Everybody wanted to do a course like, like Robert and Jones. They were just copying it. And uh, that, was, that was a very unfortunate thing, but there's such a good, and that's why I like what Tom Dog did, calling his practice Renaissance, because that's right. exactly what was happening.
0: Well, the, the irony of that is that then almost, you know, then a large portion of the industry started to build golf courses that looked like Pete Dye. Golf courses yes. and, and it didn't right. really get any more interesting. It got more loud, but it didn't really get much more interesting.
1: <laughs> yes, and 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 I agree. And and you know the famous famous quote by you know by Pete Dye that he uh, he says I can't tell anybody else's courses from mine, so <laughs> he stopped doing all that. Yeah, you know yeah. jokes about his his is the only course that can burn down and all that kind of thing. And, you know, so they 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 went to doing different things. Well, so. I think the,
0: the the moral of that is you know, talent wins out. You know, it's not just about what you're doing. It's just, if, you know, a talented guy can probably, with vision, can do a variety of different styles. And that's, yes. you know, so Pete Dye did change his style a couple times. Uh, yeah. One of the things that we talk about in this, uh, I talk to other people, architects about, is, you know, we're the, the top architects now who get all these great jobs, do we notice the small evolutions in Tom Doak's work? Do we notice the small evolutions in the core in Crenshaw, Ovois? Because I, I know they don't stand still. I mean, I think they approach each job uniquely and they always want to try new things, but maybe it's because of the sites that they have. They, you know, the the common perspective on it, just looking at photographs or playing at once when you visit there is like, oh, you know, here's another Dom, Tom Doak course with, you know, scruffy bunkers and a lot of movement in the land and it's on a sandy site. But, you know, it, the interesting question is, are these guys subtly changing what they do as they go along? Because I think architecture has to change. It has to go someplace from where yeah. we've been in the last 15 years.
1: Well, the, the minimalist movement or what's going on now, uh, you know, since, uh, since Sandhills, um, which really, really changed things. So much of what's going on now is site-based and people are getting incredible sites there's not an economy for a lot of new golf courses at all and where they are building them is is where they are where the the site is just an incredible piece of undulating sandy ground that's that's what people are building on for the most part i mean you've got you've got some other things going on Uh, tiger woods is blue jack that's being praised for being very playable, which I think is great, yeah. And it's its own setting. There are other things going on, and but so much of these courses are really they're you know they're they realize in the small, not small, but um, you know still a tight golf economy where courses are are closing. They're realizing they really have to do something really special to get people to go there. And they know golfers are willing to take the pains to really, you know, fly an extra hour and a half in a plane or whatever it is, and and, and actually take a plane trip to go to these great places, these destinations like Bandon and now, now you know, uh, Central uh, Wisconsin mm-hmm. or that whole region and um, Cabot up in Nova Scotia. Yeah, Cabot. Yeah. yeah, I mean Cabot. You're going you're going out in the boonies, and then there's uh, out in South Dakota. Um, Graham Marsh did one. Yeah, the Prairie yeah. Club. The Prairie Club, yes, yeah. thanks. And, uh, so you've got people willing to, to go to very special places. Um, the, the, so the answer to that is a lot of that is, is really site-based. And Tom, guys like Tom Doe and Bill and Ben Cruncher, are so well-studied so many years ago and have seen so many great things that have really... Analyze golf architecture on a deep level. Uh, that they, I, I think they've they've entered. I don't think you see as much evolution in their work as some others, but, but you can still you can still see it. Mm-hmm. But because they're so mm-hmm. so much based on the site, especially with guys like Tom Tom Doak and uh, C&C, you know, very very site based design.
0: You, yeah, you I think I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think with with, um, with Bill and Ben, they're, yeah, like you said, they're so connected to the site that they're not going to do anything that's radically different than they've done before because they work as, probably as closely with the ground as, as anybody ever has. So it's, it's process-driven. Whereas I, I do yes. think Tom would want to... See what else he can do. You know, he keeps getting like sites. He gets. He has so many sites where you, you know, that don't allow him to be truly creative because they're so good. You know, he has to. Yeah. He has to honor the, the 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 beauty of them and the potential. But I do feel like with with the reversible golf course, and I just feel yeah. like he's got he's got a bunch of arrows in his quiver where he might make more of a, a kind of a, a big leap like Pete Dye would. You know, going from one style and you know you, then you look at his later period stuff and it, it's quite different than what he became known for.
1: Yes. The, the, the one in the, in um, I believe Williamsburg, Michigan, the um, black forest. Uh, right. There's definitely an evolution there. You can see that. Right. And where the site is not dictating everything. And he loves undulating greens. So you can, you know, there's something to be seen in Tom's work in, in that regard. Also, he just, yeah. he feels like he, he feels that any good golf course really has, Generally speaking, has undulating greens. I think a a case. I get it's an interesting argument. Place like Shinnecock Hills don't have a lot of undulations, but that's William Flynn. That's his, his sort of uh, mild potato chip kind of a kind of a green complex mm-hmm. that you find at Shinnecock, where it falls off at of the front, the rear, and then maybe flares up a little on each side. And um, so th- I think there's a lot of great Newport, Rhode Island, where we worked for many years that there There's not a lot of undulation in those greens because it's windy sights, both of them. so I think, but uh, yeah, without without interesting greens. and that brings me to something that I think is really important, um, and that is I think that you know we're golf courses have not gotten that much tougher for the really good golfer, but they've gotten in some cases tougher for the uh, for the average guy. even though equipment, has been a great advantage. The advantage I see in equipment is for the average player is more in the driver than anything else. They, they hit better drives and then screw up the second shot instead of being somewhere in a the rough, they may be in the fair, but they still screw up the second shot. So, um, but I think, I think the contours of a putting green is where it really creates, um, there, there's more of an equalizer in those, uh, in those kinds of courses that have subtly contoured greens that uh, are not big heaving contours necessarily, in some cases, yes. But I, I think that's those, those subtle contours and greens, We have to really learn something on how to play the golf course are what, are what keep a course playable for the average Joe and more difficult for golfers to keep running around with a bunch of birdies. You know, there are some golf courses big heaving contours where the, where there's not a lot of thought put into the um, into the cupping areas where they're just like, okay, 2% here and then we've got a big ridge down the middle of the green or something and guys just hit the ball into the ridge and then feed it to the hole and the the putts are are fairly predictable but when you have greens that have very subtle the, where the green contours are very carefully constructed and, and molded uh, I think that's where I think that's where you really get uh, – you have a, a really good level of playability, but you put a – you put more of a premium on lag putting and you put more of a premium on uh, on uh, reading these subtle breaks. You see courses like Shinnecock, they're hard to read. The, the greens are a more subtle nature. Uh, we like to see what we call a continuum of a slope change and not, not just you know 2% here, then drop to a lower area, two percent there. We like to we like to see as you go across the green that the, the percent of slope changes continually between one and three percent. And so that there's always something interesting to do.
0: When I, when I was at stream song, I asked a question to my caddy and I, he made me feel really stupid afterwards because I asked <laughs> him, uh, we, I think we're must've been playing the blue course, I think. And I asked him, you know, I was like, well, look at these greens. Like it must've taken you forever to learn how to like read these things, you know, cause there's so much movement in them. And he's like, no, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. It's really hard to, when he, he said, it's really hard to caddy when you have a, a green, like what you're talking about, you really have to learn yes. the nuance because it's not obvious.
1: Yes. And and I remember years ago we 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 worked for uh, we worked for a lot of William Flynn courses, especially in Pennsylvania. And way back in '92, we started working at Lehigh Country up in Allentown. And I just me and I know I probably have a little prejudice. I think they're the best green complexes William Flynn ever did. They're so subtle. And I remember seeing one of the members' kids was in the. National for the junior junior golf tournament or something. I thought, wait a minute, how uh, those greens aren't very undulating. How the kid gets so good? And then a couple of years later, it finally dawned on me. I got I got less stupid and realized it was that subtlety that really, you know, really helped that guy. You know, and I, I had a totally superficial view of Flynn in the in the early '90s and middle '90s there, and I had to learn. Um, but they're just a superb superb set of green complex just a fantastic golf course it, it's it's hovers within the top 100 classic right at the bottom you know 10 right uh, it goes off the list back on the list it just hover it's just a fantastic guy that's one of those hidden gems that's just a that's one of those places people should see mm-hmm. you know and not not just not just see you know rolling green Marion whatever it is but uh, yeah. They should see those other, other great fling courses, too, that people don't talk about as much.
0: Well, going back to that Willie Park course in New Jersey, yes. you are talking about that sort of, you know, just been sitting there and doesn't get a lot of attention. When you yeah. go there, first of all, can you tell that, that the greens have receded and all been all naturally evolved due to maintenance or whatever over the years? I mean, how easy is it for you to identify what might have been built originally?
1: Um. Be, well, first of all, because we studied the different architects and tried to tried to understand what made them unique, and go from course to course to course, and you start seeing patterns. There's one thing that Willie Park did I've seen twice, and I'm sure he's done it. It's kind of a coffee mug handle. You know, we can get all three fingers of a coffee mug or four fingers in there. Not a little ring, but a long handle. He has a contour on the side of a green. Uh, there on one of the par threes like that it's a raised area and then you see funny little things like that that are unique to to one architect you've never seen anywhere else um and you know i've seen that i've seen that elsewhere and, and there's certain char- that may be an extreme example but you see certain characteristics of uh of an architect that get repeated and you start getting a feel for how they think so that helps the other thing is Sometimes it's just totally obvious that a green has been rebuilt. That particular course had a ninth green rebuilt in 1978 or 79. And it's not a bad green, but it's clearly more of a modern green. It doesn't have the little intricacies in it that a 1918 Willie Park on site would have done. Um, but you, you can you can pretty much tell when a green... Just by the contour, when the, the the green is authentic and it fits in with a golf course, and has the thought and nuance there, or whether it was just done with a bulldozer, the, the the character just you know is uh, be, it becomes becomes evident. I'm
0: interested in the you know ta- pursuing this a little bit that you're what you mentioned before about this the, having more minor minor movements and subtleties in a green that are an equalizing force versus a. Uh, low handicap and high handicap player were there architects who you study going back to the pre-depression era who pulled that off. You mentioned Flynn who pulled that off in a way that particularly is appealing to you. Those are, cause that, there's a lot of extreme
1: green contour from that era as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, guy, and I love that too. Like you go to a, you go to a golf course, this, this little unknown nine hole in New Hampshire Grand Leon that was done by Alexander Finley and then six of the green six of the greens I forgot it's a long time but anyway a number of the greens have been were changed by Walter Travis and you can see his like a big raised rear yeah. left quadrant just pops up in the air or you go to Poland Springs in Maine where he Ross 1915 then. Then, then he did half the greens over again. Uh, uh, Travis did, and you can you know, you got some heaving contours with these like you know these uh, kind of a, almost a beer a Ritz swale running off a of green, which Willie Park did too. He did he did that at he Glen did two of them, one going out right, one a bigger one going out left on one of their greens. But yeah, they they had some really some crazy heaving contours there, especially guys like Travis. Um, and, and I love that stuff, but uh, I want to make sure I'm answering your question properly here too. Not not just getting not just getting off on that, but you're saying you're saying you're asking Derek about the, um, the the if
0: well I have to, I guess I have two thoughts on that. When we look at it, when I say we, I mean people like myself and and you know people who are alive now when we see photographs of old courses or even uh even if they're photographs from the 1920s or if they're photographs now from a like a restored course we're obviously going to be impressed and be wowed by greens with big contours or some kind of really unique exaggerated feature that that gets our attention that that looks fun you know the minor characteristics that you have to learn upon repeat playing that might be perfect for a a club member or or a private club, aren't going to photograph well. They're not (laughs) going to get our juices flowing. It's a longer payoff for that. But so I'm asking, I guess my, I don't know if it's a question or, you know, just an idea is how do you, who have you come across that you think, you know, maybe built greens that were less obviously interesting, but had, Play paid off you know had dividends that paid off over the long term because they they were so intricate on a small scale
1: well one guy that really stands out is George Thomas in that regard mm-hmm. you know there I believe there are some architects that that de-emphasize putting and in some ways maybe Flynn did it's just his style uh, George Thomas was kind of like that too mm-hmm. Um R.B. Harris, maybe a little bit, but his he was he was a pretty functional architect. But but uh, the if you look at the you know, we worked for Riviera twenty years ago, we um, rebuilt the the sixth green with the bunker in the middle of it, and then the year before that, we did the added the alternate green on that tenth hole, the maybe the best short par four in the whole country. I mean, it's unbelievable the concept in that thing. And we just we we noticed, you know, it's like. The, there is really, um, there really seems to be a de-emphasis in, in putting here. But when you look at his diagrams, it's the first two shots on a par four of it, that Thomas was really concerned with. and But he it was more the approach shot and what was happening with the way the ball ran to the green, like his Redan or the 10th hole there where the ball rolls the other direction, left to right, if he can scoot it up there uh, along the left edge and then, get it around the right hand bunker uh that that that's a prime example of, go- of golf architecture has held up has inspired many people uh but it you know the greens are the, co- the contours and the greens themselves are nothing to write home about when you look at them but th- there's a lot of intellectual investment in them so i yeah. think that's a good example
0: now I'm starting to think maybe maybe you're you are also talking about contemporary design and how are, are you of the opinion maybe that in in some cases, modern designers are getting a little too exaggerated in their greens, especially you know
1: courses that have come out in the last fifteen years? i i I, I think people are starting to go uh, more common sense ago, but I see that as the pressure to create uh, rankings. I think people have you know, uh, a lot of a lot of rankings, a lot of ratings that are done. the people see the course one time. The classic courses, they weren't interested in somebody coming through one time. They were interested in really good match play holes and really good golf experiences over time, two or three rounds a week, maybe
0: mm-hmm.
1: where where the golf course constantly changes. And, and one thing, we worked. I mean, as far as how we've tried to work that, and we just reopened December one, the total rebuilding of the Country Club of Orlando. And I played it yesterday. I haven't played that much recently, but we have a green that we we frankly just took the idea. It was Donald. It was Donald Ross there. It was a completely new design. Uh, but there's and but what we did was we borrowed many of the ideas and green complexes that we've seen Donald Ross do because we worked on fifty. We're up to 55 Ross courses we've worked on now wow. and, and, um, 18th green there is, is the largest on the course on a rather short downhill, um, par four. And the green is broken up into four quadrants. And, uh, we took the idea from the 18th at oyster is a square green, where the higher quadrants are on the right front back left. So the other two quadrants sit relatively low. Well, they had the pin yesterday right in the middle, uh, kind of between the points of the high, the center of the green, and the, uh, the, you know, the the, uh, points of the, Mm -hmm. uh, inner points of the plateaus. And it looked like a putt was going to break. My friend was going to break left and then right again. Well, he... uh, screwed up left it really short coming over a subtle ridge and uh there was a, a an extra break in there by the time he got up there and putted again that nobody could see and i was extremely gratified by that not because it tricked anybody i don't like trickery but because um you know jim and i jim nagle and i don't don't like trickery we like to you know give people something to learn over time and that's one of those things there that uh, the subtlety of the contour, we, we had guys tell us they hit a 300-yard drive. They're 60 yards from the green. They use their putter. All four of the guys in the foursome on that particular hole, you know, were putting from the fairway. They're all big hitters and good players. And uh, the firm fairways, they put up Not one of them got a birdie because of the, the contour. And there's nothing extreme about the contours. There's nothing goofy. Mm-hmm. But it just it just puts a premium on, on on where your approach shot goes. It makes your lag putting something you have to really think about. And there's there's never the same putt anywhere on the on the uh, across the green, which is almost eight thousand square feet. So that kind of thing is what what we really aim for. What Jim and I really aim for in our work is that. And I love how 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 uh, the contours of green. Uh, especially the subtle contours really equalize the So You have extremely heaving contours, like you said. Everything's obvious, maybe to some people. It, at you know the black course, the Dream Song, or whatever, it could be. I guess um, I've been over the course, but uh, and it's a great piece of work. Gill's just does incredible work, and but the subtleties of the things that seem to bamboozle the you know those four to eight footers to the good golfer. If it's it's a difficult read. Uh, because of a continuum of slope change throughout the green and not just uniform 2% one way, then they'll, uh, you know, it really challenges those guys without killing the, the, the average golfer.
0: Right. Because there's not an expectation of an 18 handicapper to continually knock in, you know, eight footers. Yeah. But did you know, yeah. did you know which way that putt was going to break that fooled your playing partner?
1: No, it did not. I did not know because it was it was, it was was just at the toe of the slope of these two converging plateaus. And it was, you, you had to really look at it. I did, you know, it's really funny. I've missed putts. I go, man, I, I didn't think it was going to go that on work we've done, mm-hmm. on courses we've done. And the, and the guys say, yeah, you should have known what, how could you not know it? You yeah. built it. I said, well, it's a whole different thing about raking, you know, raking sand around and then starting to putt it once it's grass. You know, <laughs> it's not the same thing. So... So, so when you're building a,
0: a putting green and, and you're, you know, right before you grass and you're raking and you're finalizing the contour, you're not, you're not concerned about every single, you know, pin placement or putt. You're, are you, is it a, a matter of you're trying to, you know, find the right form? So I guess and I, I'm asking, like, you're not analyzing every single element of that green every single slope you just know that if you can build it so you can get slopes running and feeding different directions and contours meeting other contours you're going to get a lot of these nice subtle little breaks
1: yes like like let's say you've got a potato chip green okay where the sides flare up a little bit you know the middle of the green may be one percent or less but as you move sideways it, it continually changes subtly to to uh, you know, one percent, one and a half, two, two and a half, maybe even three. Towards you know, so if you've got a cup, it's not in the bottom. Well, it, maybe it's up the slope a little bit, where it's two percent. If you're putting on the line of play at that, uh, you know, for the approach shot, that putt's going to break a little left. Then you move that ball just five feet to the right. It's going to have much greater slope, a, a much um. Uh, a much greater break. If you can picture what I was saying, but absolutely the angle, you're going to be higher up to start. Yeah. So the, the greens that don't just have a big uniform pitch that have that subtle change of grade in every direction, you know, front to back side, then the diagonals, if, Mm -hmm. if you, and, and, um, we call it the 360 degree test where for a mound, bunkers, bunker complex, a green complex, all the way around to green or in any other feature, if it looks different from every angle, you're, you're, you've, you've done it for the play, for all the subtle changes of grade within the putting surface. If it looks different every way around, you're gonna have a great variety of putting, great variety of recovery shots, and it's gonna look beautiful because it's irregular and not man-made looking. It's It's got some randomness. So we, that's what we do We when we build courses. we and build features and greens. We say, look, this thing's got to look different from every angle, all the way around. It's got to pass the 360-degree test. And once you, if you see something different, there's all these different contours and undulations. Nothing concentric, but eccentric uh, in the way slopes and things and horizons on the green edges line up and all that. If they are eccentric and not not lining up parallel or concentric, you're going to have that built in variety in the putting and the recovery shots and the approach shots mm-hmm. but to me it's just still i just it floats my boat to just think about how the how the aesthetic and the strategic are so are so interrelated they're so bound to each other you you, you can't separate one from the other simple golf courses that look maybe look hard a lot of guys shoot 60 good really good golfers shoot 62s on those things yeah. but uh we, we had we had one guy country grove orlando he opened up for the first weekend it opened up last december the guy goes out and blows the course up with a 64 and he has not been able to break 78 since oh really which cracks me up <laughs> and not for the because i think haha, i got this guy but but it shows there's depth to it. And I, I, you know, we don't like dumb blonde architecture, which means it looks great when you get there, and but it has no depth to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm laboring the point about the putting greens and the 360 degree test and all that, uh, is because that's what's, that's what's going to create a good golf course over time.
0: When you got into, when you finally made the transition into golf course architecture, you... Well, you've since basically over the course of your career, you've become known as one of the foremost restoration specialists, somebody who's very steeped in history and uh, has a, a full command of putting classic golf courses back into their original shapes or close to it. When you got into the profession you know, in the late 1980s, did you have an idea that was where you were going to end up? Was that a goal for you to, to be that type of architect?
1: Um, it happened at the same time. I mean, like, the Donald Ross Society came into being almost the same month that I jumped on my own, early May of 1989. So it was happening at the same time. I was like, wow, this is interesting. And having grown up, basically grown up, in a sense, uh, on Donald Ross's best green complexes in, in New Jersey, West Caldwell at uh, Mountain Ridge Country Club, I had a great schooling. My, You know, my eye could... I had the best in front of me. I used to rake the bunkers around these greens, and and uh, I'm like this. And our high school team—that was our home course. And I worked on the maintenance crew one season. I did. I, I actually did uh, refinishing of woods in a golf shop, separate from that club. Also at the time. Wow. Uh, another year, <laughs> but lost. Yeah, what's that? It's a lost art. <laughs> you know, well, so I, yeah, I would even do the whipping, the whipping on the hosels on woods. I learned how to do that from my bo- my boss there, the golf shop. But anyway, yeah. and um, But having that as a background was just an unbelievable providence in my life. And, and having grown up in the town that had the uh, – Plainfield's a great golf course. Mountain Ridge has – more mature later, Donna Ross is 1929. That place didn't get, wasn't getting built uh, until the depression had already kicked in. And the green complexes are just incredible. And uh, so we had that, that was kind of our, you know, kind of gotten our DNA. So we had that background, that visual background, if you will, you know, the data bank of that stuff in our, cranium. So we we were able to take those kinds of things, not copy it, but to get a feel for what really good really good golf architecture is. So it it worked its way into that at this uh just naturally just moved into being able to do restoration. And and I was always going and studying golf like all golf course most golf course architects do. you go study other golf courses and see what's going on. And uh, I guess we just had some talent to be able to take what you know is unique to a Tillinghast, a Flynn, a McDonald and a Ross whatever it is or a Langford and and be able to see what makes that golf course what it is. What's the characteristics of that that really um, makes like what's the difference in a Langford green and a Ross green? It's hard to explain, but you can see it when, when you're there. You can pretty much tell. And so being a, being able to articulate that in the field or in a drawing was something I guess we had some affinity for. So, yes, we didn't actually say, well, we're going to do just tons of restoration, but it worked out that way. And, you know, we haven't done a lot of new stuff since the heyday in the early 90s when we did new a lot of new golf courses, but we've been really happy. And frankly... It's the developers of golf courses that don't pay. The clubs that that's clubs that have the, they have their money. They they're uh, they're reliable. Unfortunately, developers are always living off other people's money. It seems so. Yeah. It was harder to get paid by them. My wife says, "Good, just stick to the, just stick to the existing courses. <laughs> Those guys aren't headaches."
0: <laughs> yeah, really. Especially, and you get a lot more clients that way too. Yeah, yeah. Spread it out. Was there a course or a project that you'd look back on as your breakthrough?
1: Um, well, working at Riviera a couple um, couple decades ago, that was, I can't say there was a lot of breakthrough with it, but in terms of credibility, um, maybe the real breakthrough was the Bedford Springs Resort in Bedford, Pennsylvania, uh, Got you know, as I said, got renovation of the year um that is kind of our defining project It had Tillinghast 1912 Ross 1922 and another guy named Spencer Oldham before that in the 1890s and um excuse me and they were um you know we rebuilt rebuilt everything um and I'd say that was that was a big push that one that one really helped but it was more of a continual continual um incline rather than some peaks and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, you know, we, years ago, we worked for some great courses. The first course New England worked at is the Hyannisport Club in Cape Cod. And that led to some other work. We did a little bit of consulting Orster Harbors. And we still work out, first work out there. And then the Musquamakit Club in Newport, Rhode Island. Now we're working at Point Judith. It's It's been kind of a continual growth. Was, and uh, the first course we ever worked on in Florida, th- this, was a, this may be one of those, was uh, Indian Creek, which some people think is the best course in the whole state. In 1995, they contacted us, and we've been working for Indian Creek since then. And um, in fact, we're going to rebuild the greens and the greenside bunkers again next year, um, next spring and summer, once again and it was uh that was that was really a huge help because florida has been really good to us and it coincided with us deciding to to live here my wife and i instead of pennsylvania but still incorporating pa and all that so um with offices in both places so that that i'd say that was a jump riviera in the nine in, in uh 96 in 95 the uh Indian Creek and in 1997 Pine Tree Golf Club in Boynton Beach which I think is Dick Wilson's masterpiece we still work for them again we was just there a couple of weeks ago and we're reworking the driving range and they those were pretty seminal projects for us
0: has it been interesting for you to look back on on this time period and see where the I guess it's the a movement the restoration movement has come because because when you started out in the late eighties, nineteen ninety, restoration really wasn't that big of a thing across the country. I think Ron Pritchard started in the early eighties and he was doing a little bit, and there were other people probably like who were studying old courses. But since that time period, it's really accelerated to the point where you know almost any club that has an old golf course is somewhat interested in in exploring its roots and potentially putting the course back to the way it used to be. So when you sit back and look at it, being one of the, you know, one of the founders of this movement, one of the grandfather or the, the godfathers kind of the, the <laughs> restoration movement. Like what, how do you view this period of 30 years or so that we've made a big jump in, in
1: historical restorations? Well, it was fun watching people start getting it. You guys like Jerry Tardy would write articles, bring back the blind shot in golf. And things like Brown is beautiful. Other guys, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, let the ball run. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, bring back the ground games. People watching people get on board with that was was really good. If it weren't for the popular golf publications, that probably wouldn't happen. And um, it, it's been it's been gratifying, and uh, and it's just become it's it's become uh, like a snowball going going downhill it's just accumulated where everybody's doing it i mean it's just and gil hans is doing wonderful work everywhere now and uh just there's just so much good work going on out there now but it's been it's been very gratifying to see the people were that were really interested in that and yeah we got to get involved right at the beginning of that that whole movement when people started to uh appreciate it but as far as from our it's been it's been great to be able to have that work to do and make a living doing that
0: yeah and i I was gonna say i I was gonna i I thought on one hand it's you know you created this you know that you helped create this appreciation for old architecture and then as you said like so many clubs now want to hire architects to restore their courses but then that also kind of opens up, uh, had a, excuse me, a whole category of work. So now you're competing against a lot of a lot of people who are doing the same thing. You know, whether it's Brian Silver yeah. or Keith Foster, or you know, right. even your old um, associate Bruce Heppner or you know, right. young guys like Kyle Franz or Tyler Ray are getting into it now. So you've kind of created more competition. But then on the other hand, maybe not so, because you've actually grown the possibilities and the potential of work out there by doing such good work and making clubs realize how valuable their golf course is.
1: Yes. And, and beyond the restoration movement, we really like Jim and I really like working on, um, uh, what we call blank slates where there's no particular style, um, or there's a really bad style and we can just recreate something. There's one in North Milwaukee. We're working with them again, uh, as the economy has picked up, um, it's called North Shore Country Club. I told years ago, it's got 27 holes on pretty flat ground for the most part. And uh, we thought they ought to rebuild the greens. And we were said, uh, the chairman of the project said, Ron, would you would you accept this job? If we don't rebuild rebuild the greens. We keep them as they are. And I said, yes. And then I realized later on that because I said, okay, I'll figure out a way to do this. I realized, you know, the model that Cypress Point has quite often is greens sitting low with not a ton of undulation in them. In some cases, yes, but uh, but the bunkers are banked up on, on uh, mounds on the sides of the greens, that look kind of basically like eroded sand dunes. And uh, so, so we took that model, it's like, yeah, let's do that there, you know, let's, let the greens sit low, let's get, let's use the, there were kind of some goofy mounds, artificial mounting that were there. And we used a lot of that mounding and just cut away, kind of a sand face out of the mound or mounds, and created a whole new bunker style that was didn't require as much maintenance per square foot and uh, looked a whole lot better. We love projects like that's one of the most gratifying jobs we've done as far as bunkers are concerned because it was a total recreation. It's like, yeah, look what we got to do and it's it looks good. In fact, Jim Reinhardt was gonna be the uh, he he was a member there. He's on been on the executive committee of USGA. That was the first club he belonged to and he we he he let us use a quote he said it was the most remarkable transformation of a golf course he'd ever seen. We just totally changed the bunkering and it made the whole course um it just lifted it up. Now yeah, yeah. the funny thing—it brings us to a funny thing. Now, now, they want to do plan update because there's too much sand to maintain. They can't find labor. They can't find people to do it. The economy's good, real good, and they can't find people. And this is a this is this is an industry-wide thing going on now. They can't find enough people who are willing to work on a golf course and do it for twelve an hour or whatever it is. They're, they'd rather go indoors and do something else rather than be out in the cold, in the rain. Doing all this stuff, and they and their superintendents are people we talked to, they're having a very hard time not only just finding people, once people are there, have finding people who are reliable and, and want to do the work. So, this particular club wants to reduce the amount of sand in the next phase, you know, the next two nines they do. No, so, we got a no. I mean, <laughs> big time reductions because they just don't have the labor. So it's another type of challenge. Right. To, I,
0: those are the jobs yeah. that you know your high schoolers would do over the summer, and you know you get some yeah. eighteen-year-olds out there. And, you know, well, you did you did the Country Club of Orlando, which is kind of similar to what you just described. You didn't try to go in and and recreate Ross there, but you did some. You know, you applied the the style and and the what you understood of those concepts. And you're also, uh, I guess, are you about to begin on Pelican Bay down in Naples, which you'll also do something similar to that. It's not an old you know, it's not a Donald Ross course, but you can go in and come up with some sort of classical architectural ideas to apply to what's kind of a neutral
1: site. Yes. The, 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 the types of thinking and strategizing and whatnot, uh, that a, a good classic course requires, we're incorporating that into the club Pelican Bay. They got 27 holes. We're doing the construction documents right now. Uh, we're going to be bidding it in the middle of, uh, Middle of September, they've already got the bidders list set, and um, there's you know we're using similar uh, similar or the same footprints in some of the holes because there's not a lot of flexibility because of lakes they can't change, but we're doing some different things like one of the par fives has a uh, uh, like about 160 foot long, a very narrow 160 foot long green wrapping around a lake on the far side. And so it's like, they got all this real estate. So we're actually going to bust the thing up into two separate greens. And it's like, yeah, they accepted it. This is great. These guys are, they're kind of sporty, you know? I mean, I mean, nobody, nobody questions the validity of Pine Valley and they have two holes that have two greens each. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's eight, nine. So, you know, it's like, you can't really argue with this, you know? So they, they went for it and, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And we're incorporating certain things like, uh, well, the country of a Buffalo, we did that job of restoration by Donald Ross, mid, mid twenties, superb green complexes, one of the best sets of par threes you'll find at any golf course, and we're actually incorporating a type of green that Donald Ross did there on a modern course that Art Hills designed years ago. And um, solid routing, nice group of people, and but we just, they're liking the idea of incorporating a little more classic feel to the golf course, some more timelessness and not just kind of a more modern Florida golf course. So we're working really hard on the, the. We always work really hard on the categories of strategy, variety, and naturalness, and those are the things that all classic architecture really boils down into. Um, and that we work on that constantly, Jim and I do. And that's what we're incorporating. Those kinds of things is fun, and it's re- it's intriguing to us. You know, we, we pretty much have the have the footprint set. We're tweaking locations of greens a little bit where we can but a lot of them are just staying right where they are changing the shapes and rebuilding them but it's a whole new whole new design but we're also being careful to keep some level of familiarity on the golf course because people really love they really love the golf course and uh you know the, the membership is very comfortable with it very wide landing areas and things. we're keeping all that and so it's another type of challenge it's kind of an infusion not a total not a total uh, classic, it's not turning into a Donald Ross or a McKenzie or something, but it's it's getting some of these elements uh, of those types of uh, strategies and varieties and types of contours. Yeah, I imagine that would be very rewarding. You know, after you,
0: you spend so much time following you know trying to follow plans that existed trying to recreate somebody else's idea and i know that's also rewarding for you you're very interested in that and there's great pleasure that you derive from from doing a good job but you also i imagine as an artist you want to throw your own ideas out there and these these kind of projects allow you and jim to kind of express yourself in in unique ways that you don't get an opportunity to do at an older club
1: that's exactly right and it's it's it I think it keeps us sharp and every, you know, doing stuff like we mentioned North Shore or was was a total recreation of of a kind of a mundane modern golf course from the 60s. And, you know, this course down down here, Pelican Bay, you know, working on that, it's a little different. It's a recreation, but it's kind of keeping, you know, rooted in some of what's there. A lot of, you know, some a lot of it's there. That's a totally different thing than, than trying to be very accurate in restoration. And, and it's great to, um, it's great to have those different, different projects because each one is, each one is different and it's, uh, you know, getting our goal and our, our vision for each one is a real joy. In fact, that's why Country Grove Orlando hired us. They initially went through 25 architects and they hired us because of our, our vision that we had for the golf course. And it, it was, something they were comfortable with
0: Hmm. good for you that's that's uh that's a nice pat on the back yeah to to beat out 25 other firms is
1: that's no not easy to do it was nice yeah they they narrowed it down to 10 then to three and then from there it was yeah it was and it was so funny because we my wife and i had had bought a house here in new smyrna beach um a year before that, we were planning on being back and forth. You know, we just, we were, we're not interested in two homes or anything like that. We just It was good to have some place to put the money other than getting 0.2% interest, you know. Yeah. So we decided to do it. And we like this town. We love New Smyrna Beach. This is a great little old Florida town. And um, so uh, then this job comes along. And I asked, them, did you guys hire us partly because, you know, we were becoming local? He said, nah, had nothing to do with it. But it worked out great because I was on job site twice a week, generally Tuesdays and Fridays. That's what it took. It was a big job and it took a lot of a lot of care to get the details right. And uh, I know we probably got a little long about the 18th hole there uh, a few minutes ago, but that's, that's the kind of nuance that's built into the place because of the time investment. One of the interesting
0: things about Florida is, I think, the perception of it over the last couple decades. You know, if you talk to somebody who lives in Idaho, is that you know every golf course is is you know a subdivision course. It's newer, yeah. they're flat with palm trees, but it's real. It's really an interesting state. There's a lot of historical architecture up and down Florida. You know, up and up and down the East Coast, the West Coast too, around Tampa, Sarasota. Yes. but Donald Ross did a ton of work, and it, I'm curious to get your your opinion of that—it's—it is historical. It is old. Uh, Indian Creek is old. It's—it's it's kind of got a unique location. But a lot yeah. of the f- these sites are kind of mundane. Like you know, you live in New Smyrna Beach. There's an old Ross Course there. Just up the road yeah. is um, D- Daytona. There's 36 holes there, and they're dead flat. When you, yeah. you know, it's an interesting balance between having noteworthy architecture or what used to be nor- noteworthy. Those those particular courses are. Um. You kind. Of, well, I won't say anything else. But, uh, <laughs> but yet the sites yeah. are very uninspiring. It's kind of yeah. a con, It's a little bit of a yeah. contradiction.
1: They are uninspiring, and you know what? One of the best golf courses that was ever designed, William Flynn designed the Boca Raton Hotel and Resort back in the twenties, and it was basically flat. Thirty-six holes. It was basically in. It was Pine Valley South. It was so good. It was ridiculous. And it wasn't because they built big hills. It was because of the angles. You know, long before Pete Dye created the Cape Hole, diagonal 18th hole at Sawgrass at the stadium, of course, you know, guys like Flynn were doing things on on flat ground, like the 5th at uh, Shinnecock Hills at a double fairway with his diagonal carries that you had to, you had to negotiate and think about, and uh, that's that golf course was. It's a shame that thing's gone, mm-hmm. but uh, it was just incredible on flat ground, and it was one of the best courses around because of uh, because of what he did uh, with the with the angles and and the, and the and the the locations of the hazards. So you can make you can make good golf courses on flat ground. Do you look at a place
0: like like uh, Daytona? and just see an endless array of possibilities. I mean, it's a nice, I mean, it's a big, big property. It's right in the middle of the town, kind of.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, like, I'd love to, I'd love to, uh, love to do something for those folks. I mean, municipalities are kind of tough to work with sometimes, the, the government agencies. But, uh, but you're,
0: but the point is, like you could take, so. a. like you just said, you could take a, a flat piece of ground and inject a lot of character and life into it without, yeah. you know, having to build, you know, hillsides and moguls.
1: Yes, and we, you know, we did well. Well, I mean, I'll just jump back to Country Overlando. It's got some slope to some parts of the property, but essentially it's flat. And uh, and the uh, you know there's 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 an uphill par four and a downhill par four, but nothing extreme. But. Again, it's the angles, it's the placement, it's where you got to put, where where you've got to think about where your direction and your distance on a tee shot has to be coordinated, and 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 you're you're always got to strategize. So you can you can do a lot of you know there there are good well there's one Jim Nagel just came back from Bryn Mawr in uh, Chicago suburbs. It's a William Langford on very flat Chicago land property. Well, Flynn dug a couple of big lakes they needed and he built up these ridges, subtle ridges and flashed the sand into those ridges and he created all kinds of interesting angles and turns and approaches and things and the fronts of the greens are almost all open and it's this nice little golf course uh, on flat ground and and then you've got places like Indian Creek, it's a totally man-made island Mm -hmm. that actually is Finishing holes that go uphill significantly, (laughs) and uh, designed originally as 460 and 451 yard par fours in 1929. That is Uh, unbelievable. Now they were downwind for the for the in season, you know, the north, the northeast winds coming down through, and they played in with the wind, which is one of the signs of genius of Flynn in that course is how he used the wind because that's a windy area. Yes. Yes, one of the hardest par threes in the whole country is their their twelfth hole that's uh, appears in Jeff Shackelford's book on the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. Just uh, you can see that just in it's like a postage stamp, 198 yards out into the wind. But just uh, yeah, just, just so yeah, the flat flat ground you, flat ground can still make good golf courses. And if you can get any drainage, you can perch up the greens too.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize about Florida is once you get away from the coast, you actually have some pretty nice ground movement in a lot of places. I mean, oh, there's, yeah. there's those sand ridges that run through the middle of the state and you can get some pretty dramatic elevation changes and, you know, and also just some nice rolling golf topography.
1: That's true. Even, even here, we have this place called Sugar Mill. It's got 27 holes. Joe Lee did in New Smyrna Beach. Just some great undulation there. It's supposedly the highest point in the county. And then you have Polk County which is down there where, where uh, Mountain Lake is Lake Wales. You know, that great Seth Raynor from 1916, that, that, um, that course just got tremendous undulation. It's just, it's just beautiful. And that whole region, Polk County had Lake Wales, especially used to have something like four or five golf courses. We've seen the old photos of it. And there's another Seth Raynor down there, um that they <laughs> they filled in the punch bowl green and different things like that, but it's still got this tremendous topography. There is a yeah, there's a Jupiter Hills. There's a lot of really good topography in far You just gotta find it. Mm-hmm. And that that's Davenport. You know, uh Wayne Stiles did a course, uh Davenport Country Club there. It's got topography. And then there's another place called La carica which is in Lake Wales and that is incredibly hilly. Old old orange groves.
0: Orange groves, yeah. Through the orange groves, it's very rustic and rural. And even yeah. a Flynn didn't Flynn do Cleveland Heights up in Lakeland, and that's kind of plays off a off a ridge and goes down, and it's got some movement in it.
1: Yeah, that one. Yes, that one. I haven't been to. I need to get to see that. Um, but yes, from what I understand, it's it's like that.
0: You were telling me the other day when we talked on the phone about uh, a course north of yours called Tamoka Tamoka Oaks which is a public course and it's owned by, you know, somebody who's getting up in years, I suppose. I don't know. We weren't quite sure about that, but it's, it's got a pretty nice routing kind of like a a cloverleaf routing. And you said that place is, has a great sandy soil and has a ton of potential. What would it take to take a course like that to use this one as an example and turn it into something special? How much money would it take? How, how difficult would it be?
1: Yeah, well, in that particular place, it takes a million bucks to get the trees in shape because they're in bad shape, really bad, and uh, many of them, and some falling over. But the actual construction of the features wouldn't be that much because you just cut and fill the sand, to tell you the truth. And uh, and if you can, uh, it, you know, it's two mil for the irrigation, you know, mil for the trees. You know, we're starting to add up now. Um, and, uh, you know, throwing a million and a half for the features, and uh, rework the tees, so you know you, it takes about takes about five mil to do it. They got a naturally set up drive range. It's superb, and if anybody wanted to work with the buildings, it's you're throwing a lot more in there because the buildings really need attention. Uh, they actually need to be totally re- re- rebuilt, you know, torn down. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would, you know, it's it's a five million dollar thing if you can have scruffy rough on the side with well maintained fairway. Uh, it just could be a, a tr- it could be a tremendous golf course. That's something I uh, comes up a lot when I talk to people. You know, and
0: of course, writers like me and you know who don't actually do the building or <laughs> the designing or get our fingers dirty. You know, we're like, oh well, what if we just converted this this public course? It could have so much potential. Look what it could be, and it could be great for the community and all this. But you know, we never know what the price tag is to do a smart. You know, not an extensive, but just a really smart playable renovation on a course like that but it sounds like you're yeah. saying you know even in the best circumstances with good sa- sandy soils you're still five million or north
1: you still got it well in this particular case the trees, uh, is trees is a big price but mm-hmm. you still got it you still got a it needs a whole new irrigation system you know it's, that's what and then some support buildings and um, even if they're very modest and uh The I've it's it's in really bad shape. (laughs) They'd have to have all new equipment, maintenance equipment, too. So it's an investment, it's a big investment. Yeah, then you'd
0: you'd have to run, you know, run numbers and see if you have any chance to recoup those costs at at any point in time. Yep, yep. Damn, I I was hoping you're gonna be a little more optimistic than that.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, if it weren't the trees, it didn't require all new irrigation, it would be a lot cheaper, but you know, you can. You know, I mean, it's really not that you could probably build the greens right out of uh, right out of the native sand. Tell you the truth, you know that that and that's done in Florida sometimes. You know, you go to Vero Beach, there's some courses there that uh, they just pushed up the sand, and it worked. Yeah. And we we worked with uh, Dick Pasala from Bookside Labs. He's a genius. At, oh yeah. Uh, for years, yeah, and he's a genius at doing uh, finding out how to do things. Uh, economically and doing them properly. I mean, he's the guru. He's the man. Mm-hmm. Dick and Eric Gasol, they're just fantastic. They work with Corn Crenshaw. Corn Crenshaw,
0: I was just going to say that, that, yeah.
1: Yeah. Down through the years, we've worked with everybody like that. we we worked with him, with them, at some point or another since 1989. It's uh, just – I just I just love that. One thing I want to say about Mike Herdson again on that line is the agronomy side. Mike really – helped me to think like a scientist and we don't have to be agronomist but we have to have enough common sense in what we're dealing with. we have to have enough sense of things to understand like how to analyze bunker sand initially how to you know see if there's too many silts in a greens mix and sandy green mix things like that um and you know how to think through issues of of you know, how water runs through soil and all that. With guys like Dick Pasol and 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 Mike Herdson, it was just fantastic. Just really, you know, the the I love science. And I love natural systems, and that was just fantastic to have have their uh, influence on how to think through things too. That that really helped us as architects. I mean, I am I am so fortunate. I never actually worked for another golf architect. Mike Mike came along, you know, at just the perfect time. Guys like Dick Pasala teaching us things along the way and so we have we so we had a vocabulary and a working knowledge of these things not necessarily the, all the technical expertise that we rely on other people for but that's just been an incredible blessing to have those guys you right know, and guys and like mo- that around
0: and mike also he also introduced you to bruce Hepner, right who was your first associate i guess Oh yeah that's
1: right yeah but yeah, I, I was like hey i need somebody so i talked with well, tracy may used to work for mike and i would talk to tracy once in a while and and uh tracy goes hey i got this guy here when i, was, I called him to see if they knew of anybody and bruce came and, and uh, we spent three years roughly together and it was great and uh Built this our first eighteen hole golf course called Donegal Highlands up in the mountains along the Pennsylvania Turnpike, <sighs> in Western PA. It's like, look at this thing now, like oh man, that's so primitive. <laughs> it's, uh, and, uh, but they may, they people love playing it. You know they love it, so it has a great function. And so Bruce and we've actually talked. Bruce and I have actually talked about getting back together and playing that course. <laughs> yeah. But we just got told that we're going to be able to consult with the rolling rock club in western pa that's not that far from there so we, in that little spot we're running the gamut uh-huh. of from one end to the other of uh high end to, to no uh l- lower end public yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure it's uh there's a lot more to oh, that of well, course yeah than, than had, on. it was funny one time bruce stood there when we were building it we're on site one day together. He just started laughing. He goes, Like, all this stuff you studied Ron, this is like coming out of you. And he started chuckling and it was just funny. And we were it was good to work together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bruce and I don't talk that much together, but he's a he's a dear guy and he's uh doing great things himself. And you know, he wanted to get back to Michigan. He had a tremendous opportunity with Tom Doak, and I'm glad he you know, it was great that he took it. It sounds like he's doing okay too. We'll start to wrap this up, Ron. I know you do
0: a lot of. Uh, you've worked with, on some Dick Wilson courses, and you've done some bunker restorations. And you mentioned your association with Pine Tree, which is is master widely considered his masterpiece, and that's your opinion as well. Would you be interested if an, if a club approached you and said, "We have this old, you know, nineteen fifty five Robert Trent Jones course, and we actually want to restore it to the nineteen fifty five version"? Would that be something you'd be interested in? And I'm not aware of any thing like that existing or any project like that that's ever been done
1: no interesting years ago one one guy that worked for robert R. jones said maybe someday they'll be restoring robert R. jones right. courses and i was like uh and i was thinking like probably probably a little bit of bad snobbery in my head i'm thinking yeah no way buddy you know but uh but we work for colgate university and jim Nagel handles that project and uh there is some restoration in that master plan and it was it and Jones had, you can find him in the Cornell Library. Jones had all these sketches he made. That was the first 18-hole design right. he did. And he did he did stuff that looked like Stanley Thompson because he worked with them. So we can't get the, we're not getting the ornate bunker style there, but we we will be uh, doing uh, Things that you know try to stay true to, jo- to Jones there, and so yes, there is there is something of restoration in that, and uh, but it's it's not it's not the overwhelming direction of the plan. I would argue there. that
0: even though it seems like most of the quote unquote smart golf people have moved beyond Robert Trent Jones, that. Even if for, even if it's just from a historical perspective, it, it would be worth preserving a lot of his early work. You know, I'm talking about the 1940s through maybe the end of the 50s, maybe into the 60s, when you know he was he was still trying a lot harder. His ideas were kind of fresh and relevant, and he wasn't just you know cranking them out over and over again. Yeah. But from so I think from a historical reasons, it's worth preserving. What about from just a, an architectural design style reason? Could you see validity in,
1: main you know preserving his old works? Um, golf architecture has very strong parallels with other design professions. Design professions, especially building architecture. What uh, until 1978, nobody preserved Victorian buildings. And uh, actually, my senior project at West Virginia was a downtown rehabilitation of Uniontown, Pennsylvania, using. Uh, you know, using historic restoration as the basis for rehabilitation. So there was a movement, that was 1979. There was a movement in those days that started, and and then it took a whole decade later for golf course architecture to catch up. And I think there is value architecturally to not take, not just plow under Robert Trent Jones, but yeah, it'd be good if that's, uh, it would. It's. A, I think it's a very good idea to get uh, back to what Jones did in some of these and preserve them, because what one era thinks is you know, you should just be gotten rid of. Totally, uh, the next era wishes it were still there. So I think. I think it should be. I think these things should be preserved. And and not everything. You know, Robert Jones did did do a lot of stuff. I, I think. Um. Yeah, you know, I said before where Jones was prolific, Dick Wilson was proficient in that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And uh, Wilson's courses were overall, they were they were better, but Jones, you know, Jones the, the huge greens and uh, you know championship golf, you know, that was what what people wanted. You know, that was that was it. The other thing is, I'm not sure that we're
0: really getting an accurate picture of uh, Trent Jones' courses. If you would, if you would, you know, imagine in 1975, and somebody said, "Let's go look at all these Donald Ross courses," and you went and visited all these courses in New England and in the East, yeah, y- and you would be like, "There's nothing really worth preserving here." You know, these courses are overgrown and they're not that interesting, and you just you could just walk away and think yeah. nothing of it. Whereas we we judge a Trent Jones course now based on how it looks now. And we don't think about what it looked like when he designed it or when it opened. And it kind of bothered me about Bell Reeve a couple weeks ago at the PGA, how there was a, a faction of the people who were really dismissive of the golf course. And, th- and that's fine th- to be dismissive of Bell Reeve in, in 2018. But a lot of the criticism I heard was about like how overgrown and how, how many trees there were and where the bunkers were placed and some of the strategies. And if you go back and look at Bell Reeve when it opened in 1960, it didn't look anything at all. I mean, it was barren. There were hardly any trees. The bunkers were in, you know, different places. And I'm sure the green contours were completely different. You know, of course, it's been worked so much. But if we judge a Trent Jones product, how it looks today, we're not appreciating the original intent. But we do that with Donald Ross, and we do that with Killinghouse. We always go back and capture what it was like when it opened, and we don't do that with Trent Jones
1: now. Yeah, well, Reese, you know, R.T.'s son Reese yeah it's a Reese great, Jones. great guy course. yeah he's Reese's re you know reimagined and and, and repurposed the golf course to, to suit championship golf now and uh, and you know it, it's there, there it, there's a little bit of a different program there I've got a little book from 19 well a picture book from 1957 called golfing America that a friend of mine gave me found in the Uniontown Public Library for 50 cents it's got these old photos from the 50s of various courses and one of them is one of the fairways at oakland hills in michigan and that's uh, was uh, you know you know the monster you know that right. hogan 51. brought to its knees and that bunker style was every bit as interesting on the side of that fairway as anything you'll see built by you know by hans or cnc or doke or anybody uh, it was really interesting. Now the 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 rough was up to your knees, you know, it was, but it was very irregular. It was much very irregular bunkers, bunker edges, with big grass. It was real interesting. Jones and his sketches, his early sketches, show that they show that kind of bunker bunker edge, and it was you know what Jones did with that course. Um, and now he may not have changed those bunkers. Maybe that was Ross, or maybe it was a combination of the two. But by the time he got done redoing it, that course looked more like that course looked more like a minimalist golf course than mm-hmm. than uh, than anything else.
0: Yeah, it's and, and you know, I don't it's it'll be interesting to see in the next 20 30 years if if we can unearth historical records from the you know the 1940s and 50s, and <laughs> see what these courses looked like when they opened. We have such such a database now on the golden age courses and yeah. all those architects and, and what they were thinking. And uh, I imagine eventually we might get around to paying it attention, and then and maybe also respecting a little bit more the post war years. Um, but then again, maybe not, <laughs> <You> <laughs> know, given Locust, the, given the nature of people.
1: Well, look, Yeah, you just reminded me, Locust Valley up in the Rochester area, where they used to play the Wegmans on the LPGA tour we've consulted with them a little bit and uh there's a early early robert trent jones green complex i believe it's the 17th hole it's been a number of years since i was there but it looks like stanley thompson you know the rolling up and down mounds and stuff it was early jones it was some really good architecture it was fascinating but you got into the era after that with the um you know, where they're just really building a lot of golf courses, and they got out with the, the guys in the dozer, and, and you, you could tell the difference between a dozer-built course and more of a handmade course. Right. Peachtree, have you seen Peachtree? You know, the, no, I have not. Then the new pro at Country Club Orlando came for Peachtree. I need to get over there. Yeah, I mean, I
0: it, the you know it's allegedly hasn't changed much since 1948. It's hard to verify that, but it it's there's a lot of nice little features in that golf course. It's very, it's very well done. There's a lot, a lot of interesting things there.
1: Yeah, and I, and I just recently saw a photograph of the, uh, well, maybe it was on your thing, but uh, a diagonal creek and a bunkerless green just on the other side.
0: Uh, that would be this par five second. Yeah. That kind of a famous hole. You, you come off a, like a plateau driving fairway and then it drops down to that diagonal Creek. The criticism is there's no, there's no incentive to play to that left fairway. It's not a very strategic hole because the green pitches toward the water so severely, there's no way to keep the ball up.
1: Well, in the old days when you had more of approach shots that ran, that probably made more sense. Yeah. Right. Right. Um,
0: Speaking of getting into the modern era, this is something that I ask everybody who comes on this uh, podcast basically but what is what is the best modern golf course that you've seen that you've not been involved with the best modern best modern course it doesn't have to be the greatest in the world but just the one that you like the best
1: wow it's good i have actually jim nagel's been i have not gone to bandon yet, so I probably can't even give you a good a great answer to that um Oh man, I have to think about that because I want to put a criteria on it. Um, wow.
0: I never, so I never know when, uh, yeah. It, there's such a delay when I ask this question. There often is, and I never know if someone is because they, they don't, you do, do architects just not think about other people's work? Is it because you don't want to say, or is it because, you know, you, you just haven't, thought about it and you're trying to figure it out but there's always such a pause before somebody answers. yeah
1: isn't that funny yeah you know i think there's probably some of that mixed into it those different things but it's it's more like yeah um, my first thought is i'm trying i'm trying to come up with the ones the more modern ones that that um i really en- enjoyed cusco willow by cnc in georgia that mm-hmm. was i just thought that was fascinating um wow that's I haven't been I've got to get over and see um, Friar's Head that but no there's so much you know what the funny thing about it, the quality of the the courses of the minimalist era is so they're so good it's very hard to separate it now I, I really you know I've played TPC Sawgrass Stadium course very difficult really good I that probably would not be at the top but I can't give you a good answer. I need to see a couple other, a few other places. Okay. That's, get that, to that, that's an answer. It's an yeah. answer even though
0: it's a non-answer.
1: Yeah, I wish I could give you a good answer. I just don't want to throw something out there. But there's so much good stuff that people have done. It's uh, it's incredible. I'll tell you one that I really like. We interviewed there, but it's uh, San Francisco Golf Club. That was recreated. Now that's a lot of it's the same. That was a lot of restoration, but there's some new stuff there too. Oh, was was it the
0: the Cal
1: Club? The Cal Cal Club. Club. I'm sorry, South San Francisco, not San Francisco Golf Club, but the Cal Club. Yeah. That Kyle Phillips got the job. Kyle, yes, and Kyle, great guy, and uh, yeah, we won the preliminary interviews too. Uh But uh, okay,
0: so uh, you meet somebody who wants to become uh, very intimately knowledgeable about Donald Ross. So what are some of the golf courses that you're going to recommend that they, that this person go and see and why?
1: Okay. The, um, I do recommend mountain Ridge and then I recommend Plainfield because they've, they've been worked on and they're, they've worked on pretty faithfully and uh, they've got almost all their original green sites there. Um, they should They should also go to places that aren't known as well like Manchester Country, New Hampshire or Lake Sunapee Country Club and see some of the stuff that people don't know as well to get to know Donald Ross's less famous work.
0: What do they find when they get there?
1: They find how good an unknown, a relatively unknown Donald Ross golf course is. Mm-hmm. That's extreme. The, 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 it'll teach the quality, the the um, the incredible quality that's there. Now with Seminole, the green contours aren't there, but with Seminole, you see they they've, they've lost some of the original design contours. Not all of it, but uh, the genius of Seminole is in the routing. So one should see Seminole for that routing. Uh, Ross courses, like all the other good good architects were just extremely well routed. But that's something that uh that that really needs to be seen. But how he used that land, the two sand ridges, or the dune and then the sand ridge, how he routed. It's just absolutely superb. The um if you're going to look at Ross courses, you you need to look at different eras of Ross. And uh a place like Rolling Rock, nine holes, and, and they uh, they added Brian Silva added skillfully added nine more holes there at one time, but the original nine there are so pure, 1917, uh, that that is that is worth studying, and then you also have courses like Brayburn in Boston where we work right near Boston College, uh, 1912 Ross only the fifth course he ever did in the you know, only the fifth course he ever did in uh, Massachusetts. Quirky, knobby stuff. Um, you know, early, early Ross, uh, and just a really good golfer. So there's an architect a student, a student of architecture ought to, ought to study the early, early stuff of Ross and then get to get to the really, to the really good stuff too. And then that Another one would be the country of Buffalo where the greens are pure. Some of the best greens you'll ever see on a golf course. And like I said before, one of the best sets of par threes anywhere in the country, including the famous, semi-famous, I guess, pulpit par three. You hit off a cliff of a quarry, a horseshoe cliff down to a mesa green popping up out of the floor of the old quarry. Uh, Just great really great golf holes. Yeah. Um, I'll,
0: I'll I'll put a picture of that into the show notes so people can check it out, but it's a pretty awesome looking hole.
1: Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And there, and there's, and the the 12th hole part three on that course is in Ross's book. Golf has never failed me. You know, there's, there's just really good, really good golf holes there.
0: When I had Mike DeVries on, I asked him who he thought was the most underappreciated or kind of uh, an architect, practicing now not an old person but an architect practicing now who deserved more recognition than they typically get and he said you he said ron force really that's nice yeah i thought so too Uh, so i'll ask you the same question who's working nowadays that you feel is is a little bit too underappreciated
1: well he kind of he's, he's getting better known but keith foster kind of flies under the radar sometimes but Mm-hmm. extremely bright guys doing some great projects and uh he's uh he's an incredibly talented guy that's one that's one name that that uh pops up in that um boy, some guy's getting some great publicity now too um well kyle franz has done fantastic work down in the pinehurst region mm-hmm. and he uh you know, he's getting some due too. You know, also, but uh, he's one that uh, he's one that really uh, still a little bit. Uh, well, he you know, Bruce Heppner, He likes to fly under the radar. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I think. But you know, he's been he, outed a little bit now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like you said. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think those guys are that aren't as well known as they as they could be. For the quality
0: of work well yeah i'm gonna well i'll talk to those guys i've, I've had kyle on before uh but i'll get bruce on and and uh and uh, keith too hopefully and, and they can maybe pay it forward we'll keep this hot potato going I, in the, yeah in the next I direction
1: i don't know if it's a west coast east coast thing but you know like we talked about before kyle phillips is just some does such a high level of work and good stuff i've seen his, his project at menlo he rebuilt that near San Francisco, uh, just really interesting thoughts and strategies put into those. That's, I would say he's he might be one that really deserves more more credit because he's a very good golf architect.
0: Ron, I feel like we could probably go on for a bit longer, but let's let's go ahead and shut yes. it down for now. Maybe we can do this again sometime. I appreciate your time. It's great talking to you, and I uh, hope we get our, our paths crossed someday. Maybe when I'm down in Florida, I'd love to hit Country Club of Orlando with you sometime.
1: That would be fun. I'd
0: love that. Thank you. All right. Well, good talking to you, and uh, best of luck, and let's stay in touch. Thanks. Okay, well, that was Ron Force. I think we covered a lot of territory there. We even got in some music talk. If Ron wants to uh, get the boys together and jam a little bit, they've got the bass covered, uh, maybe a drummer, harmonica, banjo. uh, And if they do decide to go gig, I've got a name for them. We'll call them the Architects of Rock. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Ron reached out to me after the recording and you know we spent a little bit of time talking about you know if someone wanted to study Donald Ross, where should they go particularly and what would they find at each particular place He talked about the routing at Seminole and the Greens and Mountain Ridge, for instance and uh, he said he you know he wished that he could have pointed out a few more courses that he thinks are excellent and that he's familiar with. He pointed out uh, Salem Country Club and Wittensville in uh, Massachusetts and Um and if we ever have Ron, on again, we can break down those courses in more detail. But he just wanted to point out that those places are exceptional and worthy of study. I thought it was interesting that we talked about Tomoka Oaks. We spent a lot of time here talking about the potential of, of renovating and revamping existing golf courses and turning them into places that are more open and affordable and accessible and tied into the community a little bit better. Uh, Smoke Oaks, though, he said would cost about $5 million, and a big chunk of that in particular was drainage in the trees. But it's good to have a price tag on this as we go forward talking about these uh, potential projects and, and how do we move public accessible golf forward. Uh, $5 million is maybe kind of a baseline entry point into getting off the ground with more projects like this. One quick clerical note go to the show notes at the feedtheball.com website and check out the photograph I put up. It's the par three hole at the country club of buffalo that ron talked about the famous pulpit hole you know donald ross does not get a lot of credit for being a flamboyant designer but this hole is jaw dropping it's this kind of altar green that just pops up out of this quarry and it looks impossible to hit you got to see it to believe it it's really something else it's a very dramatic very cool hole on a personal note i just wanted to point out that this is the uh, one year anniversary of the first episode of the feed the ball podcast Jim Ang, Episode 1, debuted uh, September 1, 2017. Uh, And we've done 31 podcasts now. Hope to make it another year. Uh, Thanks to Ron Force for coming on and talking to me. I thank you all for listening and being a part of this as well. Please leave feedback if you'd like to at FeedTheBall.com. You can leave ratings and reviews on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the podcast. That always helps. You can always hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at FeedTheBall. Yes, Thank you very much to the Sundogs and Will and Lee Haraway. And until next time, and we do this again, cheers. So your ride sails over the fields And you make all your animal deals And your wise men don't know how it
1: feels
0: You'd be sick as a brick
1: The sand castle virtues are all swept away.